to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton here with you all today. Thank you so much for hanging out in the Freedom Hunt. Great to have you. All right, we got a lot of big hearings down on Capitol Hill. It's uh, quite a day for the D.C. crowd, the insiders of the Beltway, and everyone else watching, of course, as this plays out. So let me get into the summary version of all this. You have, first we'll start, by the way, with the FBI, Russia, Trump conspiracy, hacking, all that stuff. And then we'll get into the Gorsuch hearings about the likely next Supreme Court Justice of the United States, Gorsuch. Uh, So, first on the FBI, Russia, cyber hacking, elections, collusion, conspiracy, all that stuff. Here's what we know after today's hearing, and let me say that None of this is really new, but it has been confirmed. There was a lot of neither confirm nor deny on t- during today's hearing, but there was some confirming, a lot of denying. Here's what we know. Yes, there is an ongoing FBI probe into possible collusion between the Trump campaign's uh, associates and affiliates and Russia. No. There is no actual evidence of Trump-Russia collusion. Zero to this day. Nothing. No, there is no evidence yet of any wiretap at Trump Tower. This is according to FBI Director James Comey. Yes, according to Representative Devin Nunez, other surveillance may have taken place of Trump associates other than the wiretap, the alleged wiretap at Trump Tower. Yes, if someone leaked classified about General Flynn and his conversation with an ambassador, that would be a crime. And yes, there's a lot more that we need to find out about a lot of this. Didn't advance the story all that far today. It just confirmed some of what is already known. And it showed us, of course, that like so many of these hearings down on Capitol Hill, This is largely about what can be taken from this for both sides politically. Of course, anybody who tells you this is just about national security, this is about safeguarding our democracy, this is about preventing the next election from being overturned or tainted by Russian interference, anyone who says that that's what this is mostly about is either grandstanding or lying or both. There is no way that you could make that argument, given what we were talking about today, because let's say that we were to find out that there was some Russian, that the Russians talked to the Trump campaign about how they were going to do something about Hillary Clinton. It has still yet to be announced what the possible criminal charge would be. And in terms of the security efforts here, I've got, a, I've got a very important safety and security tip for all of you. When somebody asks you 
what the password is to your email account in an email, don't give it to them. <laughs> if, you, if you think it's somebody in your IT department, get on the phone. Don't email back, oh, we need to reset your password. This is from your IT administrator with, oh, IT administrator, I, right away, sir. Which, something along those lines, I don't know, whatever the specifics were, I don't know. But it's how they got into Podesta's email. And I'm sure within the DNC, they got into the system by sending one of those emails that has a link saying, just click on this to reset the password. And somebody could have been DNC intern for all I know. Oh, jeez. Look at this link. I better click it. Whoops. That was a mistake. There's not a massive security review to do here. Uh, propaganda is as old as the printed word and, in fact, predates it. Mass propaganda uh, in, the er in the era, in fact, of radio and now of television is omnipresent. It is all around us. Increasingly, I think Americans are waking up to the reality that their own news media is in its own way, a form of propaganda. In fact, the word propaganda comes from uh, the Catholic Church and its propagation of the faith. Uh, that was, And so it, it only took on this negative connotation, which, of course, if you're a Catholic, is not a bad thing at all, but it took on this negative connotation as a term in the 20th century. And you can read Bernays's... Uh, it sounds like I'm talking about the sauce, but I believe his name is Edward Bernays. Not Bernays, which tastes very good on the French fries, on the burger, the steak. Bernays sauce. It's delicious. Just be careful with it, though, man. It's, it's addictive. Um, but Edward Bernays wrote an, uh, an essay I could recommend to you all called Propaganda, if you want to see how this is also a, a factor in commercial enterprises. And it is information intended to bring about a certain uh, formation of opinion, to bring a psychological effect of one way, of one kind or another. And the media certainly is a tool of propaganda, as we know. In fact, Russia runs a channel, RT, that is a state-funded propaganda channel. One of the areas of criticism that I've had from the beginning with uh, General Flynn, and I know some conservatives, some big Trump supporters never want to hear this, but it is just true, is that even someone of my very, uh, you know, my, my stature within the intelligence community and as somebody who served his country... After I got out, I wouldn't go on RT. And I was asked many times, wouldn't go on RT. Not, not, not going to do it. Not going to be a part of a Kremlin-funded English-language network that's meant to push there. So that was a mistake, right? But we understand that there's a lot, of, a lot of moving parts here, and this is all about scoring political points for most of the parties involved because there's not a security review to be had here beyond what we already know. This wasn't some sophisticated uh, direct denial of service attack or something along those lines. This wasn't genius hackers like a scene from The Matrix in some deep, dark, sub-basement level C outside of Moscow working tirelessly around the clock to use supercomputers to bounce off the satellites and the cathode tubes and the ray guns and whatever. No, this was about as sophisticated as somebody who's telling you that he's a prince of a foreign country somewhere and you just need to give him your bank account information and he'll give you $10 million. If you fall for that, that's a that's a bad one. And if you're the DNC or you're Podesta, you've, certainly in the case of Podesta, we've been told it was very basic. So it's not about a security review in that sense. And I, I would then want to ask the Democrats, and we will get to this point, and I, I would also 
caution us all not to be mirroring all the tactics that Democrats use. With regard to Iran, for example, if you had any questions about their bend-over-backwards deal to make the Iranians happy with regard to their nuke program, you just wanted war. I don't want to take this into the absolute and make a an intellectually dishonest argument out of it all. But in time, we will find out, okay, so Democrats who are screaming about all this Russian interference and Russia is an we're hearing Russia is an enemy state now, not in opposition to us on foreign policy. People are suggesting that Russia is an enemy state. Those are some of the same people, especially when we're talking about Democrats who for years would have ridiculed you if you said that we are in a new version of the Cold War, Cold War 2.0, would have ridiculed you if you defended Mitt Romney's assertion that Russia is our greatest geopolitical foe. We know this because Obama did literally ridicule him and that press, oh, so many guffaws and, oh, the back-slapping laughter was hilarious. Did you hear what Romney said about Russia? Obama said him straight. Let's all meet up on Nantucket and talk about journalism. So we have to keep an eye on what's really happening here, and it... I'm fine with more investigation because there will be more investigation, to be sure. I'm fine with finding out more facts. I think that that's uh, a a worthwhile endeavor. But understand that whatever the facts are, there are forces at work who are going to try and frame them, uh, frame those facts in such a way that it's just going to try to help their side. This is political tribalism at play. This is Democrat versus Republican. It's not about helping or defending or safeguarding the country. It really isn't at this point. For And just watch, I watched the hearing this morning. You watch it, you go, oh, okay. So we've got a lot of Democrats that are grandstanding. And I, look, it was very clear as well. You had Republicans that were quite focused on, you know, is is Lincoln a crime? Is it a crime? That's, that's is that close enough to my, well, well actually, I like Trey Gowdy. We'll play some Trey Gowdy later, but he was in full prosecutor mode there. And he kept hammering home that point. We all know leaking is a crime. We can't even get the FBI director to say that there was a classified leak with regard to the Flynn phone call. He wouldn't confirm or deny that. But we had a lot of people talking about whether leaking was a crime. And the big takeaway for the Democrats, and they're going to run with this now, and you're going to see all kinds of stories with supposition in place of facts, with insinuation in place of advancing the story. But for the Democrats, it's, well, there is an investigation of Trump associates' ties to Russia, which we will see. Maybe Paul Manafort was involved in some shady dealings in Ukraine that have nothing to do with Hillary and the election in 2016. I don't know. We'll see. But that's all the Democrats take from it. Well, there's an ongoing investigation. And I do sense that they they have a feeling that this is fair play because they reject now that Hillary lost the election, that whole FBI investigation of her server. They think that that, well, it depends on the day. That cost her the election. Russia cost her the election. Comey cost her the election. You know, bigotry, sexism, whatever the day. It's always something other than the Democrats just stand for an increasingly burdensome and destructive omnipresent state that has no limitations beyond majoritarianism and progressive ideology, which changes all the time, too. It couldn't be that that's what the American people rejected. It couldn't be the American people wanted a reassertion of national sovereignty. No, no, it's it's Russia, it's the email investigation, it's James Comey, it's Anthony Weiner. Oh, just come up with any number of things. 
So that's why I will continue to look at each stage of this investigation with all the information that comes out. And I will be as honest as I can about what is problematic and what is being inflated, where they are hyperventilating for no reason, and where we have to say, all right, this does seem to be a bit shady. But as we do this together, I want to make very clear that above all else, this is a political street fight. Trump is in a street fight right now, and street fights are ugly. This is not going to be perfect. You're going to see people on both sides making wild accusations and claims for which they do not have evidence. You're going to have people on the Trump side that aren't necessarily being as forthright about their defenses and their version of events as perhaps they should be. Uh, you're going to see people on the Democrat side that are just going to latch on to every factoid and try to make it seem bigger than it is because it's not really about the truth. It's not really about what happened. It is a street fight, a political street fight. Keep that in mind. And unfortunately, when you got guys on one side with bats and guys on the other side with lead pipes, there's not a ton of room in the middle for, hey, I'm neutral. I'm like Switzerland. Let's just look at the facts as they come in. I'll try. But I'm going to be getting hit with a bat and a lead pipe, depending on where I am. It's a metaphor, by the way. All right. uh, 844-900-2825. Buck Sexton with America Now continues with so much more in just a few. Some very interesting questions came up today during this hearing on Capitol Hill. And I, I always I like to point this one out. You have people who I think I might have even said this last week that I had to explain to someone who's a lawyer for a major publication in the country that there is no law that prevents the government from uh, prosecuting journalists for leaking classified, that journalists all think that they, because they have an editor and a fancy newsroom and, you know, a guy with rolled up sleeves who's like, get me the story. Uh, Like, we're all stuck in the 60s or the 70s, but you know what I mean, Uh, that they have some special privilege under the First Amendment. That is not true. In fact, this is just a custom that has become confused with being a law, and I think we should all keep that in mind. Uh, Trey Gowdy, uh, whom is is oh, is always good TV, I will say that, and uh, and is a, is a smart a smart guy. He uh, asked FBI Director Comey about this play clip eight. Is there an exception in the law for reporters who want to break a story? Well, that's a harder question as to whether a reporter incurs criminal liability by publishing classified information. And one probably beyond my ken. I'm not as good a lawyer as Mr. Schiff uh, said I used to be. Well, I don't know about that, but the statute does use the word publish, doesn't it? It does, but that's a question I know the Department of Justice has struggled with through administration after administration. I know the Department struggled with it, the Fourth Circuit struggled with it, lots of people have struggled with it, but you're not aware of an exception. Let me me, uh, jump in here. Uh, In fact, there is no exception which we should all keep in mind here, as the New York Times always, and and others, the Washington Post, the New York Times, they say, oh, well, this is what we do. This is journalism. And when you put out, well, at at what point would it not be journalism? Uh, At what point is it actually just intended to either undermine U.S. national security or uh, to advance one side's political interests at the other, even if it harms national security? These are questions that we should at least be willing to ask. And Also, what qualifies as a journalist these days is a whole other discussion that I think would be worth having as well. But it is DOJ. Isn't it fascinating? If somebody inside the government, uh, this is the way the DOJ operates. If somebody inside the government gives information to a reporter, 
and then the reporter publishes it. They're both American citizens. They both have the same duties of patriotism and obligation to federal law, but it is only the original person inside of the government who will be held accountable for that. Meanwhile, some very damaging things have certainly been published in the past, and journalists just say, well, the public had a right to know. Interesting. I'm not, I'm not saying that this should not be the way that it goes. I just think we should all understand. You'll notice the FBI director did not say, oh, no, journalists, that they don't have a criminal liability. The answer is technically they do, but they are not prosecuted for it. That is the real answer. And I can tell you that I've had this argument with many people and they have never won because I just come down to, OK, show me in the statute where it says that journalists are not held liable under the Espionage Act. Show me anything that says that. And the answer is there's nothing. Isn't it fascinating that people that take their profession so seriously and it's such a part of their lives, journalists, oh, we are an essential pillar of democracy. They don't even know this stuff. So many of them don't know it. I find it very shocking. But let's go on to motivation for a second. One of the more interesting parts of the hearing. Why did the Russians hack? Why did they do this? FBI Director Comey got into the motivation. Play clip seven, please, if you would, sir. By early December, you already had that uh, conclusion? Correct. That they wanted to hurt our democracy, hurt her, help him. I think all three we were uh, confident in at least as early as December. Now, don't allow them to run too far with this one. And I should probably get into a sports analogy because Comey himself got into a sports analogy later on in this hearing. But do we think that, generally speaking, that uh, jihadists all over the world, would they rather deal with a Democrat in office or a Republican? Do they want to deal with the political party that is always making excuses for Islamism and saying jihadism is oftentimes our fault, the response to bad U.S. policies? Or do they want to deal with Republicans who are like, you know what, this is an existential threat to Western civilization. We will take the fight to these enemies and we will destroy them. I think generally they'd want to deal with Democrats. But you don't hear much about that in the elections, do you? Here that there was a preference, and as we understand it, a personal preference, meaning it was about the person at the top of the ticket uh, for Donald Trump instead of Hillary Clinton. First of all, Putin, I can't get inside his head. I don't know what he was really thinking here. But I think Trump is a is a far more uh, entertaining and engaging and charismatic figure than Hillary Clinton. So that goes without saying. I don't think anybody is surprised by the fact that Vladimir Putin would rather have Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton just because Hillary Clinton is not going to be someone that Vladimir Putin has a lot in common with. I don't mean politically. I just mean they probably don't have a lot to to chat about. Uh, But it also doesn't really matter. Uh, This double standard about when somebody that doesn't cast votes and their opinion on the election matters and when it uh, doesn't matter is a game that the left will play here. But... It doesn't make any difference into uh, when we look at how people voted in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, and that this was the plan. And I'll get into this later. And we're going to have some people on the show who are uh, brilliant conservatives over the course of the uh, three hours tonight, but don't like Trump very much. And we'll get into a little bit of what they think is real here, and I'll tell them what I think is real, and we'll settle somewhere in the middle, I'm sure. Or at least you can settle somewhere in the middle if you want. Um, so we'll do that and more. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. What did you think about those Russia hearings today, everybody? That and more coming up. He's an ex-spy trained by the CIA who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. What I do have a very particular set of skills. 
Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center, 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. So I got an idea. Let's, let's just overstate as much as possible the impact on our security on this country that this Russia intrusion into a couple of computer networks had. Let's just go right. Let's go right to the apps. Let's go to eleven on on the dial. Let's go up to eleven with this one, and let's do it by by playing some audio from Congressman Heck. What the heck are you doing? Uh, play clip twenty five. This matters. It's serious. Our battleships weren't sunk, and our towers didn't collapse. A la two thousand eleven. But make no mistake, two thousand sixteen and is a year that we should mark on our calendars. And it's still going on. The attack didn't end on Election Day. And it will continue, as you have suggested, unless we, all of us in this room, stop it. All right, let's let's talk about this for a second. First of all, he is suggesting that the contents of some pretty boring DNC emails and John Podesta's unclassified email account, keep in mind, they're so upset about this. Do they seem as upset at all to you about the Snowden disclosures? Do they seem this upset at all to you about the CIA, dis, you know, alleged CIA disclosures recently? Do they, do they seem this upset even about Chelsea Manning's release of hundreds of thousands of classified documents out there and all of the ramifications of that? No, this upsets them more than anything because it matters more to them. Because for Democrats, power is the ultimate goal always and in all cases. They'll pretend that this is about national security. But as we continue to dissect this, what is the national security takeaway? Don't be a don't be a doofus when it comes to your email account. Okay, maybe we could put out some public service announcements like, you know, only only you can prevent email hacking. I mean, I, I don't know. He says, unless we do something to stop it, what are we going to do exactly? This is what I find so disingenuous about the Democrats' position on Russia and more generally on cybersecurity and espionage and all the things that have been happening. If you know, people have been saying, oh, could you imagine if a Democrat colluded with the, colluded with the Russians in, the, in this way? First of all, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State and her husband was getting half-million-dollar checks from a Russian bank with direct ties to the Kremlin, and so there's that. So, I mean, there, we have evidence of, unless you really think that, hey— I'm just going to talk to you about the global economy. It's worth half a million bucks, right? Unless you believe that Bill Clinton is worth that half million dollar check. If you were a normal, rational person, you'd probably think, oh, they were trying to influence Hillary Clinton's decision-making processes. Hillary liking Russia or not doesn't matter. Hillary likes money, though. We know that. We're quite aware. Made a vast fortune off of some speeches that she chose to give. Bill was making a lot of money too, but you know they were just trying to solve world problems. You know it's all about it's all about the children, hungry children, and you know helping ladies. Well, especially helping the ladies. That's what Bill likes to do. So they got all this money, and that was not talked about then. It wasn't a big problem. Uh, by the way, we will. I promise you, as soon as we have numbers on this, and we have to let it run. For, it's going to take a little while here because ha- we have to see at least a couple of quarters to be fair uh, to the story. But I want to see what the donations to the Clinton Foundation look like in 2017 versus 2016, 2015, 2014. And then I want to just play a lot of clips of all of the Clinton hacks 
who were on TV during the course of the election claiming that it was just they were doing good work. He was just doing humanitarian work. I mean, they were just trying to help. No, they, they weren't really. And it's a specifically Clintonian failing that they managed to not just uh, sell their influence to the highest bidder, both Hillary and Bill, but that they were willing to pollute charitable giving in the process, too. That now any person who thinks about writing a check somewhere to an organization that maybe has a famous or a former politician who's deeply involved in pushing the issue might think, well, is this like one of those Clinton Foundation things? Am I really writing checks so they can have private jet travel and they can pay consultants, but say they're solving world hunger? That's one of the enduring legacies of the Clintons, who, by the way, are not going to step out of the public spotlight for long. You can be sure about that. We'll talk about that later in the week. But you had Heck, Congressman Heck of Washington, on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, HIPSI. It used to be called the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, and people would uh, refer to the acronym there, and then they told them to stop because they, they didn't like the... I mean, when I say used to be, people would just refer to the acronym as shorthand, and then they said, no, don't do that, because they didn't like the way it sounded. Uh, but you have HIPSI, House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and uh, they're saying that unless we do something about it, this will continue. What, what does this have to do with that? The much more serious hacking ongoing with Russia, China, any number of other foreign countries is into sensitive systems, is into classified systems, is going after military programs, is industrial espionage, is stealing our commercial and trade secrets, is a theft of civilization-level importance, meaning that our advantage, and I have to... People don't... They don't teach about the Venona Papers in school. They do not tell American kids these days. I went all the way up until college without even hearing about Venona. Didn't hear anything about the truth of the allegations that sent, uh, that uh, McCarthy made about penetrations of the State Department. I had to go off on my own to read Witness by Whitaker Chambers, where he talked about Alger Hiss and made an ironclad and obvious case that he was acting for the communists, that there were these penetrations of government. They don't teach our kids this. They don't teach your kids this in school, period, at all. I, I wonder if anyone listening was ever assigned in school, The God That Failed, a fantastic book essential reading, out of print now, out of print on the penetrations of the U.S. Uh, and and of other governments, really, pardon me, but the penetrations of other governments. Alger Hiss was the U.S. penetration and witness, but in The God That Failed, they talk about former communists, they even have Richard Wright, uh, African-American author in Chicago, talking about his experiences. It's an excellent book. It talks about the structure, the cellular structure, and the day-to-day uh, propagandizing and the arguments made to intellectuals about a totalitarian ideology and how it forced them to eat it up, the culture behind this. These are essential historical examples for us to all be quite familiar with because this is coming back now in the form of progressivism, but cr- progressivism is uh, very similar to communism in its methodology, is very similar to communism in the Uh, reliance on speech and using certain speech patterns, both to identify yourself as part of the movement, using certain words to identify yourself as part of the movement, as well as forcing the other side to use your language. In fact, there's a very interesting anecdote in it by uh, Kessler, who's one of the six former communists writing 
in The God That Failed, where he says that a, a young woman in Germany who was a part of one of the communist cells, that was a cellular structure, very similar to a terrorist organization, uh, they weren't allowed to know what the other cells were, and this was how they formed a—this was true grassroots stuff, although then there's the astroturf component of the Soviets and Moscow uh, sending money and trying to influence, influence this too, but it was very cellular, very ground up. And they had a, a woman who just by her usage of the word concrete, because that was a tip-off. The way that today, if you say patriarchy or if you were to say you know, paternalism, it, it's a tip-off that you're a progressive. At that time, to use in a certain context and with certain specificity the term concrete was like waving a red flag saying, I'm a commie, I'm a communist. And that the police were able to... The fascist police later were able, when the Nazi takeover occurred, were able to know that she had been part of a communist cell and then, you know, sent her away to one of the camps because of her usage of the term, just the word concrete. But they don't teach this anymore. They don't teach about Venona. They don't offer to any students that I'm aware of at any school I've ever heard of the Matrokin Archive, which is a fantastic compendium of KG. The KGB archives, my friends, are open for you to read. And what you would find out then if you were to go and read through the Matrokin Archive, also out of print, as I understand it, by the way, oh, these aren't things that people should know about, then you'd learn about how the Soviets were ripping off American technology for decades, that the near parity they had on some military systems was the result of not the brilliant Soviet scientists, but of stealing stuff from us. And that was able to keep them, even with their preposterously flawed economic system and their iron-fisted totalitarian political uh, culture keep them to be a real military threat against us because yeah they couldn't come up they didn't have a free society where information was bubbling up from the people and education was something that allowed free free and open inquiry but they could steal from ours and by the way the democrats and the left in this country were the ones always telling us that that wasn't happened that it was a red scare that this was all fear-mongering and now we have this bizarro land reversal where Democrats are saying, well, on this Russia issue, we see this is, as that guy was before just saying, a 9-11 level, Pearl Harbor level threat. He is comparing these things. Well, it's not quite the battleships and it's not the towers coming down, but this is serious just like that was serious. I guess if your only goal in life is to make sure the Democrats are in power in this country, well, then maybe you could start to make some argument about the level of seriousness. But I think we have to take that argument rather unseriously. What are they really going to do about this? What are they willing to do about this? They don't want to go to war with Russia. This is the game they used to play. Oh, you don't, you don't want to make a deal with Iran? You must want to go to war. So it's tough. I know it, there's a part of me that wants to just do to them as they have done to us and say, oh, what are we going to do with Russia? You're going to, you're going to stop this? What, do you want to go to war with Russia? They're not focused on the broader cyber espionage and cyber hacking that's going on all the 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 attacks there are so many of them and so few of them are even publicized we're not allowed to know about this the government's keeping this from us that's the real strategic national security threat but democrats will downplay that because you know what are we going to do about that that's and it all comes down to this what happened that made hillary lose that's what this is about that's why as i said before this is a political street fight what happened that made hillary i, I said i would play some clips and i got a little bit uh, carried away into some other stuff there so maybe i'll give you some more uh, tidbits from the hearings today when we come back uh did you have any surprises today from the hearings anything that you weren't expecting to hear anything that you think will come out in the future 
do you disagree with me and believe that this is a big um, a bigger issue than I'm saying it is with regard to the Russian hacking? A- any and all opinions on this welcome. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Team Buck. Great to have you with me in the Freedom Hut. 844-900-2825-844-900-BUCK, B-U-C-K. All right, uh, a few worthwhile moments to revisit from the hearings today about FBI, and then uh, we'll have some fun guests joining the show. Got to talk about judges. Maybe we'll even talk a little Beauty and the Beast with you today. I don't know. I don't know if we're going to have enough time, but we'll see. Tale as old as time, beauty and... You know, the little teapot. Uh, Angela, it was Angela Lansbury, right? Yeah, she did a good job. But th- this is the live action version, which made $180 million. Who knew? Uh, over the weekend. So, Comey, Schiff, Nunez, we got some important little bits from each one of them. Uh, you get, first of all, Adam Schiff, top house Intel Democrat, saying that, look, there's no collusion, but there's, you know, man, like circumstantial evidence, which. When someone, there, there should be evidence. It shouldn't be, well, there's circumstantial evidence. No, there's not circumstantial evidence. There's no evidence, but he says circumstantial. Play clip 14, please. There is circumstantial evidence of collusion. There is direct evidence, I think, of deception. Uh, and that's where we begin the investigation. Mm-hmm. Well, can you tell us what the circumstantial evidence is? I don't know. I'm not aware of any circumstantial evidence. And I follow this really closely. The circumstantial evidence is what exactly? That Flynn didn't come clean with Vice President Pence about a phone call or wasn't completely forthcoming? That's not evidence of anything. And if Flynn's phone call wasn't, well, I mean, if the transcript of Flynn's phone call was in fact available, he would know that once this all came out. And it would be in some quarters that this would be accessible. So I, I doubt he would want to lie about it uh, at that point. But. I don't think he was really forthcoming. What's the, what? I'm looking, I'm trying to find it. What's the circumstantial evidence? Uh, that you have people under investigation? That's not evidence. That's just an inquiry. That's just inquiring. That is looking. Evidence is what you put together to make a case about something. And so far, we have, we have nothing. Um, I'm still waiting for it. So Schiff is, like I said, remember, political street fight. That is priority number one. For the Democrats, and of course, that forces Republicans into playing defense. You know, they you you can show up and try to talk nice to somebody, but if they're just going to be taking swings at you the whole time, you either can swing back or you can get hit. That's the way it goes, metaphorically speaking. Uh, Comey on the wiretap issue. Now, this is what he had to say. Well, it's pretty straightforward. Play clip twelve. As you understand the term McCarthyism. Do you think President Obama or the FBI was engaged in such conduct? I'm not going to try and characterize the the tweets themselves. All I can tell you is we have no information that supports them. Were you engaged in McCarthyism, Director Comey? Try very hard not to engage in any isms of any kind, including, (laughs) including McCarthyism. Would it be legal for President Obama to have ordered a wiretap of Donald Trump? I'm not going to characterize or respond to the tweets themselves. I can tell you in general, as as, uh, Admiral Rogers and I were just saying, there is a statutory framework in the United States under which courts grant permission for electronic surveillance, either in a criminal case or a national security case, based on a showing of probable cause, carefully overseen. It's a rigorous, rigorous process that involves all three branches of government, and it's one we've lived with since the late 1970s. That's how it works. 
So, so no individual in the United States can direct electronic surveillance of anyone. It has to go through an application process, ask a judge. The judge can then make the order. So President Obama could not unilaterally order a wiretap of anyone? No president could. Okay, so there's no evidence of wiretapping, and Obama would not have been able to order the wiretap. We've already been over this. Trump was, one would think, or maybe you can accept this or not accept this, but he was most likely referring to the previous administration, not Obama himself specifically here. Uh, And then you had, but if we're going to do supposition, if we're going to do what ifs, why not? we got the chairman of the House Intelligence Community, Devin Nunez of California. He said that he was not aware of any wiretap to, uh, I'm sorry, he was not aware of any wiretap on Trump Tower. That's what he had to say. Play it. No evidence of any wiretapping of Trump Tower. No, no, there was no FISA warrant that I'm aware of to Trump, to tap Trump Tower. And that's after you received this information? That's accurate. So there you have it. Nothing. Um, But then he said this about how there might have been other surveillance. Play clip nine. Let me be clear. I've been saying this for several weeks. We know there was not a physical wiretap of Trump Tower. However, it's still possible that other surveillance activities were used against President Trump and his associates. So we have answers and questions and really more questions than answers at this point. Not a lot of new information today coming out of these hearings, but of course, it's just fodder for the political cycle and for the various journalists who want to run with this stuff to go as far as they can. I still ask you, as we talk about this, think about what this conspiracy could really be and why anybody would want to go for it. It would be a very ineffective way to work with the Russians to get into an email account, a very ineffective way to try and throw the election. There is zero evidence, as was discussed today, that it did throw the election. And think of the risks that anybody involved in this would be taking, if not criminal risks, to their reputation and to the uh, the hatred they would risk from all their fellow countrymen. More coming. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are cold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. You had Sean Spicer in a press conference today, which has become destination viewing for a lot of folks during the day. Spicy, doing his thing. And he, first off, of course, look, he's, he's got to defend all this stuff. And it's not, it's not easy to defend the Trump tweet specifically about wiretapping and Obama because, well, after today, you had a lot of people saying it's not true or there's no, there's no evidence for it, which is not the same thing as saying it's not true, but it doesn't look good for it being accurate, a better way of saying it even than true. Uh, but Spicer pointed out that there is this entire effort underway to try and figure out what, and this is what I was getting to right before the break, and I wanted to spend a little more time on this before we move to the Gorsuch Supreme Court hearings, which are going to be fiery. Quite interesting. Uh, Even though I don't think people think of Gorsuch and fiery, he's kind of like, hello, he's a nice fellow. Uh, But Spicer said that they're looking for something that does not exist even on Russia. Play clip two. 
Is the president prepared to withdraw that accusation and apologize to the president? No, we're, 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 we started a hearing. Um, it's still ongoing. And then, as uh, Chairman Nunez mentioned, this is one in a series of hearings uh, that will be happening. The president just this morning said that the Democrats made up the Russia story. Why would the FBI director be investigating a story that's simply... I, I don't think that's something. what he said, but again, look at what... No, no, he, he, did. he said that he's investigating the nature of any links between individuals right. associated with the Trump campaign and the Russian government and whether or not there was any coordination. Correct. But again, investigating it and having proof of it are two different things. You look at the acting Obama CIA director said that there is smoke but there is no fire. Senator Tom Cotton, not that I'm seen and not that I'm aware of. Uh, you look at Director Clapper, not to my knowledge. Senator Chris Coons, Democrat from Delaware, I have no evidence of collusion. I mean, there's a point at which you continue to search for something that everybody who's been briefed hasn't seen or found. Um, I think it's fine to look into it, but at the end of the day, they're going to come to the same conclusion that everybody else has had. So you can continue to look for something, but continuing to look for something that doesn't exist doesn't matter. All right, we're joined now by our friend Charles Cook. He is the editor of National Review Online and the author of the Conservatarian Manifesto. Charles, great to have you, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, what do you think of Spicer? I mean, he, I feel like there's a lot of people in these hearings and in the aftermath and the the spinning of what was said. They're talking past each other. Was, they're saying, well, look, there's no evidence of what Trump said happened, which is that there was a wiretap of Trump Tower, or what he tweeted, I should say. And the Trump camp response is, well, there's also no evidence of this conspiracy that is really motivating most of this investigation and the whole processes around it. But what do what you take from all this? That everybody involved is overplaying their hand. It's fine to have an investigation. It's fine to have a congressional inquiry. Both of those things are, I think, necessary, especially given that uh, for reasons both good and bad, so many Americans seem to believe that their election process is tainted. Uh, I say good and bad in that uh, there are, I believe, upwards of 50 percent of Democrats who now believe that Russians hacked the election quite literally, uh, that vote totals were changed, that uh, voting machines uh, were accessed. That's, of course, not true. Um, and good in the sense that there does seem to have been a concerted effort on the part of the Russian government to uh, interfere, to influence, to persuade. Uh, I think Americans should be concerned by that. And I think the government uh, should, of course, uh, take a role in investigating it. Um, that said, I think Trump massively overplayed his hand with his tweet, which is, of course, uh, what started this off. Uh, he did use the word wiretapping. Uh, he called uh, Barack Obama uh, a sad or bad man. Uh, Sean Spicer is, is really uh, working from an untenable position. Uh, but equally, uh, the Democratic Party has decided, uh, and many Democratic voters have decided, uh, that there is no question here that Donald Trump and his campaign colluded with the Russians, uh, and that the election is therefore tainted, and Trump really shouldn't be president. And uh, if you take Charles Blow at the New York Times' word for it, uh, shouldn't be able to exercise the powers of the presidency. Uh, and I think both of those positions uh, are rather extreme. Uh, and I think it's led to some of the, uh, as you put it, talking past each other that we've seen today. Uh, Charles, I also want to get into the other major hearing today. I've been talking a bit about what happened with the Russia, Trump, conspiracy, collusion, all of that. But also we have a Supreme Court 
nominee whose fate, uh, whether he will take up the robes and sit on the bench or not, it hangs in the balance right now. Um, first, let's just, we had Judge Gorsuch's opening statement today. Let's just play a small clip of that, clip five. As a judge now for more than a decade, I've watched my colleagues spend long days worrying over cases. Sometimes the answers we reach aren't the ones we personally prefer. Sometimes the answers follow us home at night and keep us up. But the answers we reach are always the ones we believe the law requires. And for all its imperfections, I believe that the rule of law in this nation truly is a wonder and that it's no wonder that it's the envy of the world. Charles, I have been watching very closely to see how the Democrats, you know, the echo chamber effect that works with a a few uh, voices that are court watchers, a few people that do judicial analysis will come up with what the line of attack will be against a conservative nominee and then others parrot it and they magnify it and then everyone runs with it. So far, it has been really weak. Uh, it seems that the major objection to Gorsuch from Democrats has been that he believes the law says what the law says. Uh, there's some other noise about how he's not favorable towards workers necessarily, but I haven't seen much at all of what would be a a, a real um, narrative that could sideline or sidetrack this nomination entirely. Where do you think that stands? There is almost nothing that can be leveled against him, at least not against his character. Uh, He is unimpeachable on that front. Uh, He is well-respected and well-liked by people on both sides of the aisle. Nobody can doubt his intellect uh, or his eloquence. And so the Democratic Party has attacked him, I think, on three fronts. Uh, The first, uh, that he doesn't always come to the conclusions that they like. Well, that's not an attack if you're Neil Gorsuch. He will admit as much, and he did in the clip you played. Of course, he won't always come uh, to the conclusion that the Democrats like. He doesn't always come to the conclusion that he likes. Uh, His job, and you see this throughout his opinions, uh, is to uphold the law as it is written. Uh, Sometimes he thinks the law is stupid. Sometimes he thinks the outcome of his uh, decision uh, is mean-spirited or is undesirable. But he's not a legislator, uh, and he will embrace that. Uh, The second is to question originalism per se, which we saw today Dianne Feinstein do, I must say, rather stupidly. Uh, And uh, Senator Whitehouse uh, got into that game, too. Uh, That's not going to fly. Um, Americans are are not thrilled by the prospect that the Constitution that they cherish is uh, a blank document onto which uh, the personal aspirations of any judge can be projected. And the last, uh, which I understand is extremely important to uh, partisans, but is far less so uh, to the electorate, uh, is the notion that Merrick Garland's seat was stolen. Now, we've heard a great deal about this. It is, of course, nonsense. Uh, The seat uh, that was vacated by Justice Scalia does not belong to the Democratic Party. It did not belong to Barack Obama. It certainly doesn't belong to Merrick Garland. Um, The constitutional process is such that Barack Obama and the Senate uh, had uh, an equal role in putting the next justice on the court. Obama fulfilled his. Uh, He chose Merrick Garland, and the Senate said, no, thank you, which is its constitutional uh, prerogative. Uh, I don't think that's going to get in the way of uh, Judge Gorsuch. I don't think either of the other two lines of attack are either. We had Ted Cruz, Senator Cruz today, made a very important point that will obviously play a role, I think, in the discussions, the back and forth, and the debates over Gorsuch's uh, impending nomination. And he said, well, what happened? To, this, this is somebody who went to Harvard Law School, sits now on the federal bench as a judge, lifetime appointment already, 
And how did it go a while ago when Democrats had a look at him for the federal be- uh, bench? Play clip six. A decade ago, Judge Gorsuch was confirmed by this committee for the Federal Court of Appeals by a voice vote. He was likewise confirmed by the entire United States Senate by a voice vote without a single Democrat speaking a word of opposition. Not a word of opposition from Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Not from Harry Reid or Ted Kennedy or John Kerry. Not from Senators Feinstein, Leahy or Durbin, who still sit on this committee. Not even from Senators Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. Not a one of them spoke a word against Judge Gorsuch's nomination a decade ago. And the question this hearing poses to our Democratic colleagues is what has changed? Yeah, Charles, that is a question that they will have to answer. And I, I hope every American will hear either that soundbite or at least just know the backstory here. The entire Senate confirmed this guy. Uh, what, a, a lifetime appointment to the federal federal bench? is you know that, That's not a big deal, but this is a big deal. I, I don't know how they get around this without just seeming wildly hypocritical. Well, I'll, I'll offer a word in favor of each proposition, if I may. Uh, there is a difference. Uh, the, uh, the fact is that many of uh, the appointments to the federal bench uh, are the result of horse trading. Uh, and, of course, uh, because the lower courts Uh, are uh, subordinate to the Supreme Court, uh, the extent to which the party that is out of power is at any given point uh, willing to go to the mat uh, in order to stop a lower court appointment uh, is is less. Um, That said, where Ted Cruz is absolutely right uh, and where this whole thing is so farcical uh, is when you get Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, who I used to admire, uh, saying that Judge Gorsuch uh, rejects the very notion that Americans enjoy fundamental constitutional rights. Uh, when you hear uh, Senator Kamala Harris or Senator Feinstein suggesting that under Judge Gorsuch's jurisprudence, uh, women would have no rights, uh, you know, African-Americans would still be sitting at the back of the bus, they'd be unable to vote, uh, Brown versus Board would not be the law of the land, and so on and so forth. You'd think that if they suspected anybody, not just a Supreme Court nominee, but anybody who might be sitting within the federal judiciary uh, of that, that they would have. Well, I mean, that's the point. If if any of that was true, even for a lower court, that would have come up from somebody, you would think. But but I do just want to counsel against the notion that it is automatically the case that somebody who voted uh, for a judge uh, on a lower court should necessarily uh, vote for them on a higher court. I mean, it, it's true uh, for what it's worth that, that Merrick Garland was was uh, was unanimously, I think, unanimously appointed as well to the uh, the, the DC, uh, the district uh, DC circuit. So um, you know, the, the Democrats will probably come back and say, "Well, we, we we engage in this horse trading with you, and now you're turning around and throwing it in our faces." Uh, but I, I do think, as I say, Cruz's point stands, given the level of rhetoric that we've heard uh, in relation to Gorsuch. There's absolutely no excuse for. Uh, for for unanimously approving of somebody who you later make out to be Hitler. And uh, there will be a a need to get him through of, uh, well, if they insist that he clear the procedural hurdle, they're going to need all the the votes of the Republicans. And then do you think that there'll be any defections from the Democrats? Yes, I think there'll be a a number of defections. Um, I, I think for two reasons. Firstly, in states such as West Virginia, Montana, North Dakota, uh, possibly Missouri, uh, a Neil Gorsuch-type figure will be popular. 
uh, and Democrats uh, will be uh, duty bound, especially those with uh, with elections coming up, to follow the the will of their constituents. Um, I also think that it's difficult to get past the fact that Neil Gorsuch is extremely talented uh, and and is praised, it must be said, uh, by many within Barack Obama's coterie, uh, as well as those uh, within mine. Uh, And I don't think that given that he will be replacing a conservative uh, and that the balance of the court, therefore, will not be changing, I'm sure it's disappointing to Democrats that it won't be flipping in their favor but it won't be changing from the status quo. I don't think that uh, they want this fight to be the hill they die on. Now, and this is a morbid thought, and of course I wish her an extremely long life, but if, for example, Ruth Bader Ginsburg were to pass on while a Republican president uh, were in the White House, uh, I think that will be the moment at which we really see an, an explosion uh, in in the democratic right. ranks. Th- then it's right. then it's world war one it's it's That's trench right. warfare it does it's not going to get any uglier than that i can imagine all right yeah. charles cook everybody's the editor for national review online read his latest on nationalreview.com and follow him at charles cw cook on twitter charles great to have you sir thanks for coming in thank you very much team hitting a break we'll be right back i looked at the two cases that so far have been at the front at the forefront, in the vanguard, tip of the spear in the attack on Gorsuch from the Democrats, which you can just expect that they'll be unhinged about this because anytime they're talking about judicial philosophy, it's really a moment for them to stand up on the soapbox and scream about their lefty, progressive, Democrat, social justice credentials as loudly as possible. doesn't matter how incoherent it is. It doesn't matter how much it contradicts things they had previously said. This is about this is a branding exercise for members of Congress, for senators, for anybody who gets to sound off on this on TV or in one of these hearings. Uh, so it's with that in mind that I looked at some of these cases and just keep in mind that what they say, for example, that Gorsuch uh, and, and they really care a lot about the court because that's how the left has gotten a lot of its major victories in recent decades, not through the legislative process, but through judicial fiat. And we'll be talking more this week, to be sure, about the Hawaii judge um, who, classmate of Barack Obama's from uh, law school, by the way, who has overturned the Trump ban or has has put a stay on the temporary on the temporary restraint for people from six countries with Muslim majority populations. But back to Gorsuch and what has come out about him or what they're saying. They say that he sides with with owners over labor. And whenever they start to say things like this, I wonder aloud, do the Democrats realize that they have a bit of a, a Marxist, a Marxist twang to some of their objections here? Oh, he sides with, you know, sides with the bourgeoisie over the proletariat. I mean, that's kind of what they say. They don't use those terms, but they begin to go in that direction. And then. They say that he is uh, somebody who sides with the powerful over the powerless. Okay, well, for example, um, he had to uh, look into a case where a truck driver, a a truck driver was in a very, it was very cold, um, and the truck driver, there are rules that you don't have to operate a vehicle if you think it is unsafe to operate the vehicle. And the truck driver had a breakdown, and look, I'm sure some of you listening right now, and God bless and thank you for listening, are, are uh, driving 
I'm going to long haul across the country. And, you know, welcome to Team Buck, and thank you for being in the Freedom Hut. But this one guy, he's driving his truck, and it's snowy out, and he's stuck in the snow. Or not, I shouldn't say stuck in the snow. He's snowy out, it's cold, and there's some malfunction, I suppose, with the trailer. I don't know how this would work exactly. But he calls into his headquarters, and he says, well, look, I can stay here, and might I might freeze to death. Uh, I have to leave the load behind. You know, that it was meat. It was a load of meat. He was transporting uh, meat. And I, I have to leave it behind. I got to get out. I got to unhitch the trailer and just take the, I assume this is a 16-wheeler or something like that. Yeah. And uh, I got to get out of here. I'm going to freeze in an unheated cabin or not enough heat in the cabin. The, the rule states that a trucker cannot be fired for refusing to operate an unsafe vehicle. Now, Gorsuch, it seemed in the opinion that he wrote here, had sympathy for the guy because he was fired because he drove off and left the cargo. He left the cargo behind. He drove off in the cab of the truck, left the cargo behind. And the trucking company said, sorry, we told you to stay with it. We were going to get help to you. He says, well, look, I would have frozen. If I thought I would have frozen, I would have made the same decision. But under the rules that had been established, and he sued for wrongful termination, under the rules that had been established, he was oper- he operated the vehicle. And Gorsuch is like, look, I, I think that this isn't great, but the rule is the rule, and the rule is you don't you don't have to drive if driving is unsafe. Driving away because staying would be unsafe isn't what the rule says. Now, we can get into a philosophical discussion here about whether or not you would agree with that and, and that there's this is obviously extenuating circumstances. Uh, and, I, and I do have a lot of sympathy for that driver. I can imagine that was, you know, a tough call. And this is how he's you know, he's supporting himself by uh, having this job and doing this job. Uh, but Gorsuch takes the approach that the law is what the law says. And if nothing else, we know from Democrats and the leftists on the bench in recent years, they reject that. They think the law says what they want it to say. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut, everybody. 844-900-2825. If you want to call in 844-900-BUCK. Also, please go on iTunes, type in Buck Sexton with America Now, and subscribe to the podcast of the show. You can share it with friends. Very much appreciated if you would uh, do me that solid and uh, check out the podcast. So let's uh, one bit of breaking news that I will get to. We have to put a pin in it for now. And it might be a little bit of an oversell to call it breaking news, but there are some details I have to offer that are new. So I suppose this is news. No fake news here. We don't roll with the fake news, Um, but it's not breaking news like, you know. We, you know, North Korea has invaded or something. It's, this is lower down the scale of interest than that. Uh, but it has to do with the GOP health care bill. GOP health care bill has some changes that will be made to it. We'll have to see what those look like. I still am waiting for an answer to the question that I have posed in the past about why, if you're a conservative and you are a member of Congress and you've had years and years to understand Obamacare, its flaws, its deficiencies, and to come up with something to replace it, why wouldn't you put forward the most conservative, most free market bill possible to start 
and then at least leave yourself open to the possibility, because, you know, the art of the possible is what politics is supposed to be all about, says every person who works in politics that wants to repeat what everyone else says. Uh, but at least then you're you're negotiating from a position of, well, this is what we have established as what would be the best. This is our ideal. Instead, they put forward something that is not nearly conservative enough. In a negotiation, and I've learned this from family members, family members of mine, I'm the only member of my family who is in uh, media, family members who are in, uh, who are in entrepreneurship, uh, finance, law, and uh, anchoring one of them taught me about, which is in a negotiation, you, if I come out to you and I say, uh, I would like, you know, you have, a, let's say you have a car that you're trying to sell, and the car is worth $10,000, and I come out, you know, it's got some, got some fuzzy dice up by the dash, it's got some, I don't know, it's got wood panels with, with flames on the side because, you know, that makes the car go faster, so, you know, the wood panels, that's, I had wood panels on my car in college. It was amazing. Uh, it was, a, it was a, a wagon, station wagon. Everyone made fun of the wagon until, you, until they had to, like, move a piece of furniture or a mattress. And then all of a sudden, the Roadmaster was, like, the hottest thing on wheels, man. Then all of a sudden, people were like, hey, Buck, can we borrow your, shh. If you're nice, if you're nice to the wood panel station wagon, maybe you can borrow it. But I digress. Uh, so if I say 10, back to anchoring as a negotiation uh, concept, if I say that your $10,000 car, if you let me start the negotiation off and I say, well, you know, I, I'll give you seven for it. The idea here is that well, I've already and you haven't told me anything about what you think it's worth. And you wanted you thought it's worth 10, but maybe you wanted to get 12 for it. So you would have started out higher. Well, I've already been able to put the first offer out there. And so I'm pulling anchoring you, pulling you into my direction. Because if you say, well, it's worth 12, I'll be like, oh, come on. I mean, that's not even that's not even serious. If you say what it's really worth, you say it's 10. Well, I said, well, I offered you seven. Why don't we go down? We'll, we'll meet in the middle. You know, why don't, why don't we do 8,500 or not? Or, or not? We'll do nine grand. And you can see that there's already the there's already an advantage in the negotiation in the negotiation from me establishing the first point from which we will negotiate it. So with that in mind, why do members of Congress who are and with Paul Ryan, who's a budget expert and. I really don't like this. Oh well, Paul Ryan's—you know—he's just so smart. Don't, don't second guess Paul Ryan. He's so politically savvy. Don't second guess Paul Ryan. Uh, I don't know. Him and Romney didn't exactly uh, set the world on fire when they're running against Barack Obama. Side note, but I think he's a very capable congressman and, and speaker of the house. I think he's doing. I think he understands budgets. That's fine. But let's not play the oh well. You know, don't don't question Paul Ryan game now. I'm not buying that. Well, I put out this. I see. I'm talking healthcare now, and I meant to get into another story, but you know what? Let me stay with the healthcare for the for a few, uh, for a few more moments here. Um, let's get into what the bill will do. It will allow states. Sorry, <laughs> I, I I was I said breaking news. Put a pin in it, and then I started talking about my station wagon in college, which had a very special name, which maybe one day I will tell you all. You have to stay with me. I have to hang out in the Freedom Hut for a while. I'll tell you what we called the station wagon. Um, but the uh, the health care bill, this is the, these are the details we know about it. It will be changed so that states can impose a work requirement on some Medicaid beneficiaries. It'll give states more options in uh, how they spend Medicaid funds. Uh, it'll also include these are all expectations. This is what's been put out there. I'm sure members of the you know, people in the House have been telling their favorite outlets in the press, and this is how they get the story out. 
Uh, they're going to, inc- quote, include a measure sought by New York Republicans intended to largely stop the state from raising Medicaid funding through county taxes. And you had Representative Chris Collins uh, saying the change was popular. Was this from the Washington Post? I just wanted to cite this. but it, Well, Wall Street Journal. Sorry, thank you. Wall Street Journal said the change was popular since it could lower property taxes people pay, building support for the health bill among the New York delegation. Quote, GOP leaders are also expected to adjust the bill's centerpiece tax credits, which some lawmakers worry aren't generous enough to enable low-income and older people to buy coverage. Under the current bill, the credits start at $2,000 for those under age 30 and increases up to $4,000 for those 60 and older. GOP leaders aim to provide extra relief for those between the ages of 50 and 65 when people can enroll in Medicare. Uh, Okay. And they're also looking at a speedier repeal for some of the ACA's taxes. These are the changes, and we all knew there would be changes. A few things about this. First of all, they keep on focusing on the shift in payment from, well, effectively under the GOP bill, younger people would stop paying the bills of older, sicker people. Now, you may think that that's kind of mean, but if this is really supposed to be free market and it's insurance, i.e. you're paying based on your risk profile, which is why this community rating standard that they have in there where you can't take into uh, you can't take into consideration as an insurer whether somebody has pre-existing conditions and and the age and, and these other aspects of the health profile it just doesn't work because insurance is based upon risk profile right my insurance let's just make this about car see people understand home insurance and they understand car insurance because they're in charge of it they pay it and we all know how this goes we're gonna but health insurance isn't really insurance it's health care through redistributive schemes mandated by the government because really both sides of the political aisle have accepted um, whether they say it openly or not that the government has a responsibility to provide health care for everybody at some level and it's just a question of arguing over the price and the level of benefits but they believe the government should be providing this for you, that the private sector alone would not be enough. And we're not just talking about emergency medicine. We're talking about medicine. We are talking about people getting health care throughout the entire course of their lives. Um, but why should younger people have to pay for older, sicker people? And by the way, you notice that they stop. They say 50 to 65-year-olds or 50 to 64-year-olds are going to be paying a lot more under the GOP plan. Well, well Yeah. Because they tend to use more health care. And at 65, we all accept, even though the costs are going to continue to be uh, rising and over time will become too much. But we all accept that at 65, the government starts picking up a huge portion of everybody over 65, uh, over 65's health care bill with Medicare. So it, you just got to make it to 65 and then you got you got the government paying a majority of your medical bills anyway. But 50 to 65, they're saying, oh, well, that's not fair. Younger people, why? Is this is this a Ponzi scheme? Is this a redistribution of wealth scheme? Or is this about insurance? Because if you're older and more likely to be sick, you would pay higher insurance premiums. And then they say, well, Buck, this becomes a question of allowing people uh, or putting people in a position economically where they can even make the choice to buy insurance. They have enough money to do it. If they don't have enough money, then it's not even about choice. I understand that. Okay. So they need to adjust uh, they're going to adjust the uh, tax credits that are in this to make it easier. By the way, I, I did my taxes. This is a total sign. I did my taxes over the weekend, and 
I, I just wanted to take a baseball bat and start and just start swinging it at things that, you know, like little porcelain sculptures of Uncle Sam. That's all I can tell you. I was not happy. Uh, it is every, this is a separate discussion that we will do on this show, but every, automatic withholding, the Congress should, automatic withholding should go away. Everybody should be forced to write a check. Everybody should be forced to pay. I don't care if it's a dollar. Everyone should be forced to look at what they have and what they made and send in a check to the government. I mean, people say, well, Buck, why do people only get money back? Well, okay, fine. But you should have, we should have many more people that have a conception of at the end of the year, this is the amount of money that I am, you know, this is the amount of money that is getting sent to the government. Because if they take it from you piece by piece, you're like, well, I've, I've budgeted for this. All right, back. Sorry, that's a tax, a little tax interlude there. I just was very, Uncle Sam and I, there was no love over this weekend. I was very, I was very unhappy with him. Uncle Sam is being naughty. Uh, but back to healthcare. Uh, here, here's the bottom line on all this. We are arguing over the price and the scale and the scope and scale of benefits. We are not trying to create a completely free market in healthcare because if you were creating a free market in healthcare. You would be willing to let people choose not to buy insurance and then go bankrupt if they didn't have insurance. That's what a free market. And and Mick Mulvaney, and you've heard me say that here on the show before. I've been saying this for weeks now. Well, you got Mick Mulvaney, who I have to say, very impressive, very impressive on the budget. And he made an essential point when asked about this uh, recently. He said, well, let me let you hear from Mr. Mulvaney himself. You're not going to have universal care after these changes. We don't have universal. The only way to have universal care, if you stop to think about it, is to force people to buy it under penalty of law. So was That's he it. mistaken when okay. he said there should be? Keep in mind what, what we're replacing. What you've got now is we're forcing people to buy it under Obamacare, under penalty of law, and people are still looking for a way not to buy it. So clearly the government mandate doesn't work. The better process, the better function is exactly what we're trying to do now, which is to encourage people and enable them to buy a policy they want and can afford. But, was that, but universal care was not really a promise he could uh, again, uni- the only way to get truly universal care is to throw people in jail if they don't have it. Right. And we're okay. not going to do that. He's right. If you have the option not to buy insurance, there are people who will not buy insurance. And the only way to take away the option would be to say, if you don't buy insurance, we're going to lock you up. Because if it's just a financial penalty, people are going to say, yeah, right. What are you going to do about it? I'm just not going to pay it. I'm not going to do it. Right? There is no way to. And, and by the way, Really, to get universal care or universal coverage, you would also have to have the government just in charge of the whole system. You need single payer. And that's just going to bankrupt and destroy the country. And even people I know who are Democrats who are honest about it will admit that. that, that there's no way. There's no way you put the government in charge of this whole thing. And by the way, your health care gets way worse than it currently is. Uh, and there are lots of problems. And I could sit here and talk to you for hours about all the problems that currently exist with the health care system that we have. Um, I was actually, I was just speaking to a doctor today who was telling me, that uh, routine prescriptions now are not being covered by many insurers or they're they're fighting and fighting and fighting because they they're just they're they don't have the money and they don't want to pay for it and they're looking for ways to uh, they're looking for ways to avoid the outlays because we're we're playing with this system and we're engaged in what is really a large scale social engineering uh, going on and redistribution of wealth. And nobody wants to come clean and no one wants to speak the truth about this. 
Mulvaney was speaking the truth. The only way you get universal coverage is if you threaten people with prison, if they don't buy health insurance. And I don't think we want that. The mandate alone is not enough. And the mandate is unconstitutional. I don't care what the Supreme Court said the last time around they looked at this. So we need to be honest about this. If we want coverage for if we want everyone to be able to afford coverage, it means that people who still people who still are so foolish that even when it is made available and easy for them to buy insurance, they don't buy it. Uh, if they don't have it, they're going to go there. They will go bankrupt if they get really sick. And that's going to be sad. And that's going to be unfortunate. But that is going to be reality. Just like if your house burned down or if you're in a total car wreck and refuse to buy insurance, you are on your own. Nobody wants to say that. Nobody wants to get go to that level here because that's not politically popular. You know, we want we all want the magic cake that is that that never runs out, that doesn't that doesn't make you gain weight and is, you know, is good for you. Well, if you find that, let me know, because I want a piece. We're going to hit a break here. We'll be right back. All right, Team Buck, I see there is a Trump rally going on right now in Louisville. I believe I said that right. Louisville, Kentucky. Or if you're from New York City, Louisville, Louisville. Uh, Kentucky. You got President Trump saying that he will put coal miners back to work. Uh, it was so interesting that this was a a, a place where I think Hillary's uh, fraudulent persona is that maybe no, that's a good way to say it. Where all of a sudden she got called out by coal miners and she's just she knew that the left wing environmentalist base there's only so much pandering Hillary could do to coal miners before it was going to be a problem for her. But back to healthcare for a second. So I want to finish out. On this, because we're going to be talking this a lot this week, because we're told well, Paul Ryan said that the repeal could pass Thursday. Nineteen, play it, sir. So, what would you say are the prospects that you have the votes and we'll be able to pass it on Thursday? Yeah, I feel very good about it. Actually, I feel like exact it's exactly where we want to be. And the reason I feel so good about this is because the president has become a great closer. Uh, he is the one who has helped negotiate this bill with members from all over our caucus. I call it getting the sweet spot. You've got to get two hundred eighteen. Republicans who come from all different walks of life to come together to agree on the best possible plan to repeal and replace Obamacare. And the reason I feel very good where we are, we all, all of us, all Republicans in the House, Senate and the president made a promise to the American people that we would repeal and replace this faulty collapsing law. And we're going to make good on that promise. Okay, there you have Paul Ryan saying it. He says we're going to make good on that promise. Little little problem here. You got Representative Sean Duffy, though. He's out there saying that they don't have the votes. 20. The bill is going to come up on Thursday. We still, I don't think we have the votes yet to actually pass it. So you've seen Donald Trump, the president, engage. Uh, we have some Freedom Caucus members who are still no. We'll and uh, Donald's, the president's pretty good at this. So he's going to come in. He can make some last-minute tweaks on the bill and hopefully get these guys on board. So I'm very optimistic. Paul Ryan and our, and our whip have been counting folks and, and seeing what tweaks they need to make to get them to yes. And I think we're going to get there. Our one more voice to weigh in on this one. Our buddy Ted Cruz, Senator Cruz, pointing out that they better get this right because otherwise Republicans are going to be really upset. Everybody should be upset based on the promises that were made. 21, go. The average family's premiums, they've risen over $5,000 under Obamacare. That's the central problem. Now, the current House bill, as drafted, I do not believe it will pass the Senate. It doesn't fix the problem. My biggest concern with the House bill is it doesn't lower premiums. I'll tell you, if, if Republicans hold a big press conference and pat ourselves on the back that we've repealed Obamacare, 
and everyone's premiums keep going up, people will be ready to tar and feather us in the streets, and quite rightly. Essential point here, if the Obamacare repeal does not result in the benefits that Republicans have been saying for quite a while would come from repeal, if that does not happen, there are going to be problems. Because oh, what have we been promised for all this time, so many years now, from the Republicans? Just give us the power, we'll make it better, they say. Uh, this uh, They've taken on a, core, a, a critical central issue, and I, I appreciate that. They are tackling this. They're saying they'll pass it in the House on Thursday. We will see. I am, I am so far, it would be fair to say, that when it comes to the GOP House Obamacare repeal bill... Fair to say that Buck is not impressed. More coming up. Stay with me. He's an ex-spy trained by the CIA who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. What I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825. Phone lines are open, team, but we got to go to a Trump rally underway right now, live in Louisville, Kentucky. Play it. From 9-11 to Boston to San Bernardino and many, many other places. We've seen attacks overseas in France, in Germany, in Belgium. It's time for intelligence and common sense to be used. The single best way to protect, and you have to do this, you have to do this, and to keep foreign terrorists from attacking our country is to keep these foreign terrorists from entering our country in the first place. Of language where Trump certainly excels. And we will stop radical Islamic terrorism. We will stop it. Not gonna let it happen. Not here. Not gonna let it happen. Finally, we want a very big tax cut, but cannot do that until we keep our promise to repeal and replace the disaster known as Obamacare. And we're going to be working very closely with our leader, Mitch McConnell, to get that job done. Paul Ryan, everybody, they're going to be working very hard. And Congressman Andy Barr and Jamie Comer, I have to thank them for their help and their support as we move toward the crucial House vote on Thursday, the seventh anniversary of Obamacare's very painful passage. This is our long-awaited chance to finally get rid of Obamacare. It's a long-awaited chance. We're going to do it. <laughs> His tone is kind of funny. We're going to do it. What's the We're alternative? The alternative is what you have. What you have is nothing. The worst. It's the big lie. And remember this. So true. I happen to like a lot Senator Rand Paul. 
I do. Me too, actually. I like, I've, inter I've interacted I with him. I, I like, like him. him. I like his ideas. Good. He's a good guy. Yeah. And I look forward to working with him so we can get this bill passed in some form so that we can pass massive tax reform, which we can't do until this happens. So we got to get this done before we can do the other. In other words, we have to know what this is before we can do the big tax cuts. We got to get it done for a lot of reasons, but that's one of them. Incredible study in Trump communication. And it's important to realize how we got to Obamacare in the first place. Back in 2009 and 2010, House and Senate Democrats forced through a 2,700-page health care bill that no one read and no one understood. By the way, today it's thousands of pages more. It's not even understandable. They ignored the public, they ignored the voters, and they jammed a massive, failed health care takeover right through Congress. And this is what we have. It's time for Democrat leaders in Washington to take responsibility for the disaster they and they alone created. Well, that's not going to happen. But Remember nice when President Obama said, if you like your plan, you can keep your plan. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Nobody brings that stuff up, do they? Do they ever bring it up? Matt, I don't think so, right? They don't bring it up. Notice how they forget all those things? Or when the architect of Obamacare said the law was passed because of the stupidity of the American voter. Or Bill Clinton on the campaign trail. Oh, he must have had a tough night when he went home that night. <laughs> Called Obamacare the craziest thing in the world where people wind up with their premiums doubled and their coverage cut in half. Bill Clinton said that, the craziest thing in the world. Or the Democratic governor of Minnesota, who said the Affordable Care Act is no longer affordable. It's been one broken promise after another. People have been kicked off their plans and their premiums have increased by double and triple digits. Arizona up 116%. By the way, insurance companies in a great state known as Kentucky, have you ever heard of it? Are in tremendous trouble, will be fleeing, and we're going to save it all. We're going to save it all. Tremendous trouble. It's a disaster. In fact, to counter my speech two weeks ago in Congress, I don't know, did anybody see that speech? They used the former governor of Kentucky. And the plan doesn't work in Kentucky. But Matt will save us. Many of our best and brightest are Bevin. leaving the medical profession entirely because of Obamacare. 
Obamacare has been a complete and total catastrophe, and it's getting worse and worse by the day. And yet you watch the fake media, the fake news, and they try and build it up. It's a disaster, fellas. It's a disaster. Where it'd be great if they told the truth about Obamacare, it would be so wonderful for the people of this country because it would just sail right through. Our plan would sail right through. One third of the counties in the United States now have only one Obamacare insurer left. Some have none. And in your state, it's worse. In a recent interview, your governor, Matt Bevan, who's right here, so I better be careful, said that Obamacare was a disaster in Kentucky. Is that right? I'm quoting that so accurately. <laughs> and it is. It's been an absolute disaster. Half of our counties only have a single provider right now. It's a financial disaster waiting to happen right here in your own state. Thursday is our chance to end Obamacare and the Obamacare catastrophe and begin delivering the reforms our people deserve. Let's hope it gets through. Let's hope it works. Big thing. Then we get to tax cuts. Big thing. And remember, we're going to negotiate, and it's going to go to the Senate and back and forth. The end result is going to be wonderful, and it's going to work great. Once this is done, we are also going to work on bringing down the cost of medicine by having a fair and competitive bidding process. Some people think that's just as important as healthcare. The cost of medicine in this country is outrageous, many times higher than in some countries in Europe and elsewhere. Why? Same pill, same manufacturer, identical, and it's many times higher in the United States. You know why? Campaign contributions, who knows? But somebody's getting very rich. We're going to bring it down. We're going to have a great competitive bidding process. Medicine prices will be coming way down, way, way, way down, and that's going to happen fast. Big Pharma is not going to like that. But... And we're just adding that to the bill. I said we got to add that to the bill. We're going to do a bill later. We're trying to add it to this bill. And if we can't, we're going to have it right after. You have some crazy arcane laws, folks, just in case you haven't heard. I am confident that if we empower the American people, we will accomplish incredible things for our country, not just on health care, but all across our government. And by the way, that Second Amendment is very, very safe right now. All right, let's uh, we got we got to uh, put a pause on this for a second. So you got, you got Trump in Kentucky, Louisville, Louisville. Louisville, which I'm, I'm being told by some Kentucky residents on social media right now is a pretty decent pronunciation for a New York Yankee. Uh, not a baseball player, but you know what I mean? Uh, Trump, I, I, I always, when I listen to him speaking, a couple of things hit me, um, and I'm reminded of it now because he's obviously speaking in a rally. The way that politicians speak to the American people, at least the way that some politicians speak to the American people, will be changed for many years, maybe even generations to come, because it will now be, it has now been established 
that speaking to people the way that people speak is going to be okay. You don't have to have you don't have to always sound like you are you know reading lines from the Declaration of Independence. You don't always have to be uh, holding up this aspirational oh uh, it's like I'm quoting from the personal letters of the founding fathers and no you can just speak to people. They just want you to do they want you to say what you want to do and to do what you say you're going to do. That's it. It's very straightforward. Uh, you don't have to fall into the legalese and bureaucraties and the uh, strained way that so many politicians are really trying to signal to us that they are so smart and so they're erudite, they're educated, they're in charge. They, you know, No, you, you can just speak plainly and openly to people and they will respond, at least a lot of people will respond well to that. Um, even some of, some of the rhetorical... I don't know if you call it a, a rhetorical tick or a rhetorical trick or any of the above, but the repetition of certain phrases really allows you to take it in. I, I know that on the left, they say they, they make, and a lot of people, not just on the left, a lot of never-Trumpers too, they make fun of the way he speaks. They make fun of the um, idiosyncrasies of Trump's speech. I listen to it and I think you never leave a Trump speech not knowing what he thinks about something and you remember things that he said. And that makes him different from almost every other politician I have ever heard give a speech anywhere. It is powerful. Um, it is powerful stuff. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Phone lines are open. You just heard the gentleman, and we are shoulder-to-shoulder, shields high. That's an old Team Buck reference, or I guess a current Team Buck reference, too. Uh, So, what do we have to chat about here now? Oh, yes, indeed. By the way, sorry, I started talking about that Planet Earth series. It's amazing, though. If you haven't seen it, it's on BBC America. BBC America is the channel, right? Uh, And there's this, there's, first of all, they have a swimming sloth at one point, and the swimming sloth is trying to find a mate and, you know, and you've got David Attenborough, who does fantastic voiceover. It's like, and the sloth goes slowly across the river, getting closer and closer to the sloth of his dreams. And then he arrives, and it's the wrong sloth. Sure enough, you know, my man, my, my, my main man, the sloth, we didn't give him a name. Maybe we call him, I don't know, slothy or sloth-like. Uh, he goes across in the show to find his his lady sloth and she's like not having it so he did not bring over some sloth flowers it was not gonna not gonna work out for him so he's got to go find another sloth which let me tell you it's a big deal you think it's a big deal if you have to go out on a date or something or you have date night with the with the missus or the the mister well for a sloth it's like it takes hours and hours and hours to go 100 yards so you can imagine what that's like anyway the show is i really like it i like this it took them 10 years i think to finally put another nature show like this out there do we um so anyway, there is that. And I also wanted to spend a bit of time here on, oh, we were just talking about the media. And we do we, we did check to make sure the, the words were bleeped. Because Mr. Zakaria, Mr. Fareed Zakaria, uh, who is over at CNN, uh, he, he gives his analysis of the Trump situation. And his analysis goes like this, that because he has been BSing uh, for so long so effectively, you can't tell him to stop 
BSing. Let's play Zakaria first, then we'll get into a buck slap. 23. I think the president is somewhat indifferent to things that are true or false. He has spent his whole life bullshit. He has succeeded by bullshit. He has gotten the presidency by bullshit. It's very hard to tell somebody at that point that bullshit doesn't work because look at the results, right? So you got uh, Mr. Zakaria. We, let's buck slap it for a second here. There we go. You know, are, are you you're a journalist? You're saying that the president of the United States is BSing. But next week it's going to be, a, you know, I'm a serious journalist that's that's nonpartisan and straight down the center and just the facts. And why is he going on TV saying BSing? I like salty language in my private life, but I don't, I don't go on air or go on TV dropping that stuff. No good. No good. All right, we're joined by our friend David French now. He's a staff writer for National Review, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute, and an attorney and a veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, David, thanks for calling in. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Kind of wanted to get your take on a few things we've hit today, and then we'll move into some new territory with uh, the some of the court decisions of late. But first, you know, what was what have we learned today that matters from the FBI, uh, the FBI Russia Comey collusion hearing? Well, you know, this was useful in the sense that it cut through. It it kind of confirmed things that a, a lot of us already suspected, but at least now it's confirmed. We know the FBI is investigating Russian uh, involvement in the election. That's been widely reported but never really confirmed. We know they're investigating possible um, links between the Russian campaign, uh, the Russian operation, uh, intelligence operations and the Trump campaign. That's long been reported but not confirmed. Uh, you know, and it was also useful to once again have intelligence officials reaffirm that uh, there's no evidence of any tainting of the actual voting process in the election. And, you know, a lot of people on Twitter kind of rolled their eyes at that, that Republicans made a big point about making sure that these intelligence officials stated that they had no information, that the voting itself was compromised. But you have to realize that, uh, with all this talk of Russian hacking of the election, there are an awful lot of Americans who believe that the vote count is actually suspect. So it was important to get that out there. Um, and then, you know, of course, there was the much talked about discussion that there seems to be no evidence that Obama um, ordered a wiretap of Trump Tower. And then the final thing that I thought was interesting was there's uh, intelligence in- indicating that it wasn't just the DNC that was hacked, that there appears to have been an RNC hack or a, a hack of some sort of Republican network as well. But those documents aren't out yet. So those are all the high points, I think, from the from the hearing. Now, David, you, you've in the past been very willing to criticize Trump uh, as a, just a general matter, right? You're, you're somebody who will say when you think Trump is, is doing bad things and you say when, when Trump is, is actually moving in the right direction. I wanted your and you're also somebody who's held a clearance, worked in the military and as a lawyer. What do you th- I mean, see, to me, I look at this and I say, OK, the, the, clearly the media has already come to the conclusion. And I, I do believe that they this isn't a. Uh, oppose. They're not just pretending to believe this. I think a lot of the journalists out there right now think that there was an active collusion, that there was a plot, a conspiracy between the Trump administration and the Russian government to, and I don't even know what the proper term would be, not to, not to hack the election because we haven't seen anything about, but that there was going to be some propaganda effort against Hillary to help Trump and, and that the and that the Trump administration was in on this somehow. Uh, to me, I, I keep coming back to that seems like a very ineffective, very high risk 
very poorly thought out plot, which makes me think it's incredibly unlikely that is the case. Is there another way that, uh, you know, what do they think could be proven here? And what do you think is a reasonable version of the conspiracy as the Democrats on the Hill and in the media see it? Yeah. So, I, you know, this is this is a good question. You're asking, and I, in my view, the right question. What is it exactly that you think you're going to find? And, and I think if you pin down a reasonable person, a reasonable person on the other side of the aisle who's convinced of at least some degree of collusion would say that, that there was some information sharing from Russian intelligence, maybe to friends in the Trump uh, campaign, like a Paul Manafort or a Carter Page or a friend, people friendly to Trump like a, like a Roger Stone, that there was some sort of information sharing, not so much, hey, let's work together to hack uh, DNC computers, or um, let's work together to generate fake news, but some sort of information sharing, um, and that at some point, maybe or maybe not, Trump found out about it. I, I think that's the most reasonable uh, guess that I've heard. Um, and and look, I mean, we have seen no evidence of that yet. We we haven't seen, and and this is something that's really important to note. I mean, intelligence officials so far, speaking on and off the record, have seen no evidence of collusion. Uh, so we haven't seen that. But I, I, if I was going to articulate what I would think would be the most reasonable democratic um, assess, uh, the most reasonable sort of democratic suspicion, it would be that that there was some improper information sharing between these very Russia-friendly. Uh, um, Trump, earlier Trump aides. Now, remember, all of those guys, well, uh, Manafort and, and Carter Page, were excused from the campaign. So at the sort of towards the tail end of the Trump campaign, they were not a part of it. They were a part of it earlier, and they did have longstanding Russia ties. So I think that that is one of the reasons um, why there's an awful lot of suspicion. And I, I would guess that's what they're 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 looking at. Is there what statute? I mean, you're also you're a lawyer and familiar with the Federal Criminal Code. What statute? realistically i mean i know conceivably we could we could say well you know maybe they're uh maybe they're guilty of violating the espionage act or something i don't know i mean that's you could come up with anything because we are now i'm asking you to surmise i'm asking you to give me yeah you know so so i just so everyone's clear on this i'm not saying hey david what do we know now i'm saying what is even theoretically but realistically possible here i I am yeah i am not aware and it's a question i've been meaning to pose to your colleague annie mccarthy at national review as well i'm not aware of any federal criminal statute that anyone has anybody anyone in the democrat party anybody in the media has been able to point to yet other than aaron burnett on cnn saying isn't that treason which no aaron (laughs) no aaron it is not (laughs) and treason is something for which you can get the death penalty it is not treason Uh, other than that i have not heard a single statute mentioned is there a statute you think that could if what the democrats say is true and there were conversations between russians and uh, Trump campaign members about the election, what statute would they, if any, have violated? You know, that that's a great question. And I'm, you know, if you're talking about the scenario I outlined, let's say you have uh, Russian intelligence operatives who say, we've got this and this and this on WikiLeaks, and it's going to be released on such and such dates. Um, and that's conveyed to, say, a Paul Manafort or a, a Carter Page. And again, this is just to be super clear, this is rank speculation <laughs> have no right. you're taking the media's accusation more or less seriously right that's it because right. this is what right. they believe yeah let's just presume for the sake of argument i don't see that as a violation of american criminal law now as a practical political matter 
it would be utterly devastating. It would be com- it would be devastating if that if that kind of information hit the public square. Now, as far as a criminal matter, you know, it's hard to see what kind of charge would stick there. Now, you know, there are people who are more well versed in counterintelligence and, and espionage uh, legal issues than I am, to be sure. So don't take that word as gospel. But I'm certainly not looking at um, you know, what are the counts in the indictment here? Uh, I, I think it's much more, honestly, a much more of a counter- Right. They're looking for a huge, they're looking to hobble the administration politically. That's really the end goal that they hope for the investigation. But I, just so just so everyone listening, I mean, if, if you're the defense attorney and you're sitting down with, you know, I don't know, Paul Manafort or Carter Page, you've been assigned to them, and the allegation against them is and let's just assume that somehow this has turned into an indictment. I know my, my analogy is kind of getting a little a little shaky here, but uh, that they they had a contact abroad. They met with the Russians, and the Russians said, uh, "Hey, just so you know, we're going to do our part to, to help out, you know, Donald and and to beat him." And again, everybody, this is complete speculation. I'm not saying this happened, right. but if that had happened, I, I am very confident that, that that Manafort or Carter Page saying, "Okay, whatever." Uh, is violates not a single federal statute. If, if that was the conversation or something along those lines, there's no way they could be criminally charged with anything. Right, and and people need to understand there's a difference between counterintelligence and criminal. Counterintelligence investigations and criminal investigations are not the same thing, and and people need to understand that there is such a thing as a counterintelligence operation uh, investigation where you're trying to determine and frustrate uh, the strategies and tactics of a foreign power who's trying to probe America for information. That's counterintelligence. Now, it can often morph into something criminal if, for example, someone's in the United States violating the laws of the United States or American citizens give away information they're not uh, supposed to give away or conspires uh, with a foreign power. There there are a host of of criminal statutes that could apply in, in theory in counterintelligence operations, but they're not the same thing. And, and, when you hear FBI, you automatically think, well, they're only dealing with criminal. Well, they also have a, a counterintelligence side of the house, and uh, that's something that's in operation, uh, you know, hopefully at, at, at a high level of efficiency at all times. And so uh, that's that's part of what's going on here. And but when you when anyone hears FBI, they think crime, 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 and that's not always necessarily the case. Right. Well, what we were told today was that the FBI has a counterintelligence investigation ongoing. Which is about in which is yes, it can turn into a criminal investigation, but it's generally about really information gathering. It's when the FBI is acting. People always forget FBI is part of the 17 agency intelligence community. It's part of the IC, right. and this is when it is really exercising its IC or intelligence specific function, which is just about right. getting information. And when we're talking about getting information about and on foreigners. It's pretty much whatever we, you know, however we can get it is how we're going to get it as long as nobody's hurting the process. Well, and, and again, you know, this is something the FBI has been doing for a very long time. And we want them doing this and we want them gathering as much information as possible about how and why Russia does what it does. And then be able to implement and recommend to federal agencies the steps that they need to take to, to frustrate Russian intentions. So that's why at some point. You know, there's going to need to be a full report on what happened, who talked to whom, how they did what they did. And and there it's possible. I mean, again, we have not seen evidence of this. It's possible that you would see some sort of contacts and information sharing 
from the Russians to Russian-friendly members of the earlier Trump campaign possible. Now, um, is that probable? have no idea. Is it pro- possibly criminal? I think that's highly unlikely, highly unlikely. But again, this is something that's serious enough when you're talking about a foreign power's intelligence operations and a foreign power targeting an election. This is exactly what the FBI should be doing is investigating what that foreign power does. And it's, it, it's no big news flash that they're doing it. It would shock me if they weren't, but it is news that they confirmed it. David, just a couple of minutes before we have to run into a break, and I wanted to ask you about the uh, judge out in Hawaii that has put this stay on uh, uh, stay on the executive order about travel uh, from six Muslim-majority countries. You're a lawyer. What's your read on this? That Hawaii judge's opinion is one of the worst p- opinions I have ever read of from a judge at any level at any point in my legal career. It, it's, it's astonishing. What he's essentially done, is given people in the United States, and I'm not making this up, by the way, if they have hurt feelings, hurt feelings about a president's order as it impacts Muslims overseas, then they have standing to mount an establishment clause challenge against the president's ruling, I mean, against the president's order. That's extraordinary. Now, keep in mind, the people who are filing suit under this, uh, against this, sought this order, are not, are not directly impacted by it. Um, they are here. They're not being barred from coming into the country. And so, but they have hurt feelings because they're Muslim, for example, and they think this exhibits anti-Muslim bias. And they're blocking a national security and immigration order that is clearly within the constitutional purview of Congress and the president, uh, enacted under specific, explicit statutes granting the president the authority but it's being blocked on the establishment clause grounds. It's extraordinary. And, you know, this has to go. It, this precedent cannot stand. I, I look forward to seeing this appealed. I look forward to seeing if the Supreme Court will, will address this squarely on the merits without um, suffering from excessive Trump derangement syndrome and does the right thing. David French, everybody, is a staff writer for National Review and a senior, review at the National, a senior fellow at the National Review Institute. David, thanks for calling in. Uh, Come back soon. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Team hitting a break. We'll be right back. Los Angeles Times here reporting that Judge Napolitano, who is an analyst and uh, talking head over at Fox News, uh, talked to the judge, met the judge, worked with the judge many times. He has been temporarily, uh, what's the term? Well, he has been pulled from the air, according to the Los Angeles Times. I don't know if this is true. I haven't seen this verified it may just be right now an unsourced report. But for those who are asking me, as some did on social media, by the way, at Buck Sexton on Twitter, if you're listening, you can always send me questions throughout the show or after the show. Just follow me on uh, Twitter, at Buck Sexton. Uh, the GCHQ theory about how the British maybe did the spying on Trump for Obama and back. Ch- no, I, I don't know anybody who is hanging on to that one now. Uh, it, it would not make any sense for the Brits to play in in that uh, in that sandbox at all, that would be a very very bad idea. Um, they would not want to be doing that, and it doesn't make it just doesn't make sense. So I, I don't know. Maybe somebody lied to the judge, and now he's taking the heat for it. But I'm just seeing this report in Los Angeles Times that he's been pulled temporarily from Fox. So the the GCHQ theory, which is British intelligence spying on Trump, uh, I think we can put that one we can put that to bed for now. That does not seem like anyone's standing behind it. Um, all right. You got a lot of show. I'm already thinking about the show for the rest of the week right now. 
uh, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton uh, to follow me there. And also, please download the podcast on iTunes, Buck Sexton with America. Now, until tomorrow night, my friends, Shields high.